Um, good evening. My name is Barbara Kane. I'm the head of the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry at the University of Sydney. And on behalf of the school and the Department of History and the University of Sydney, I'd like to welcome you all here this evening to this session of Sydney Ideas looking at the crash and crisis in contemporary Europe. This forum is, is a one under that goes under the sort of general title, Why History Matters. It's one of a number of occasional fora that have been organised mainly, I think, by Glenda Sluger and organised, I think, with two ends in mind. The first is to stress that actually history does matter and that historical knowledge offers insight into or allows one to raise particular kinds of questions about contemporary issues and contemporary crises. But I think the second reason for having these fora is to, to introduce to a wider public distinguished visitors who come to the University of Sydney to discuss historical and other sorts of matters with us. And it's a very great pleasure tonight to have Professors um, Patrizia Dolly um, and, and Patricia Clavin, Patricia Clavin from Oxford, Patricia Doliani from Bologna, with us. Um, all the people on this panel have been involved in a very intense forum, or seminar rather, all day, talking about internationalism and the ways in which the concept of the international has come to, um, to be a very dominant one um, in historical scholarship. But tonight, of course, they're going to turn their attention rather to Europe and to the question about what previous knowledge or what knowledge of previous European crises what kind of insights it offers into the present crisis that we, we are facing in Europe today. Um, in introducing this, this, um, this forum, I would, would like to acknowledge the, 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 the support that was given um, from the International Society Research Cluster, the Institute for Democracy and Human Rights, and the Department of History. And I'm sure the School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry offered something towards it as well. So I'm looking forward to this forum. I hope you are too. And now I'd like to introduce Stephen Crittenden, um, who is the arts, culture, and religion correspondent for the globalmail.org. And Stephen is going to, to compare and the, pan, the panel. Thank you very much, and thank you all for turning out this evening. Um, I'm just going to begin not with giving a spiel, but uh, introducing you to our four panellists. Um, but before that, I'll, I'll just say this, and that is we've, we had a, 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 a kind of like speed dating dinner last night <laughs> um, where we all talked very fast about 10,000 things at once and I <laughs> tried to take notes. And um, there's, there's, there's a kind of structural problem or at least three structural problems in presenting a talk like this. You've got um, the problem of the past and the present uh, you know, the, the, the early institutions that came together in the 20s and 30s and, and, and after then, after the Second World War, to create the EU and the, the current meltdown. And, of course, there's the fact that we've got four specialists with four separate specialist areas and the problem of trying to have a conversation that is one conversation instead of four conversations going around like that. I've given up trying. I took <laughs> It's going to be a bit freewheeling, I'm sorry. I'll, we'll, we'll try and give it some structure on the way through. So let me introduce you, first of all, to our distinguished overseas visitors, Prof Professor Patricia Clavin who's fellow at Jesus College, Oxford, and the research director in the, um, of modern European history at Research Centre at Oxford. And she's the author of Securing the World Economy, the Reinvention of the League of Nations, 1920-1946. That's her next major publication. On my right, Professor Patrizia Dogliani, who's Professor of Contemporary and Modern European History at the University of Bologna, and an expert in the history of youth and youth political movements 
uh, and European political ideologies such as socialism and fascism in the 19th and 20th century. So we can see it an immediate separate area of expertise, but also one that's profoundly interesting in the context of the current meltdown. Also, Dr. Marco Duranti from the Department of History at Sydney University. He specialises in history of uh, European human rights law and the re relationship between history and memory. And we've been having lots of interesting conversations about Catholic corporatism and um, Christian democracy in the 1940s. And uh, on my left, Professor Glenda Sluger, who's Professor of International History in the same department. And she's got a forthcoming book too, Internationalism in the Age of Nationalism, which is due to be published early next year. So let's jump right in with you, Patricia. Are we dealing in the present crisis, are we dealing with a crisis of the euro or a crisis of the whole European project? Does one necessarily entail the other? And are people who are opposed to the European project actually taking, making use of it for their own ends? It's a very good question. I think when, um, when the credit crunch began, one of the debates that historians were having is, and economists were having is, what is this analogous to? So which economic crises from the past can we take to understand what's happening now and where we're likely to go? And in fact, many economists and historians said this is nothing like the Great Depression, this is nothing like the 1920s or the 1930s, which was a, a, a crisis, the 20s and 30s was understood to be a deflationary crisis around the gold standard and it was a, a crisis of a currency system, a monetary system. And what was happening in the credit crunch was the failure of banks, it was a systemic banking crisis. But in the last five years or so, we've gone from a credit crunch to a sovereign debt crisis to a, a euro crisis, which is like the gold standard. The euro crisis has very, very many similarities to the, the, the character of what became the Great Depression after 1920-1930. And so in those debates around what the crisis is, what should be done, in the last two years or so, and certainly in the last year, the Euro crisis has become a crisis for the European Union. And that was brought home to me, and this was one of the many things that poor Stephen was trying to hold together last night in our speed dating affair at a, an event I was, I was at two successive events, but one in Sweden that brought together historians with economists, with current advisors who are very close to people who are trying to manage the crisis inside the European Central Bank, for example, with journalists. And it became very clear in those discussions that people who were, had once been pro-Euro were now anti-Euro, and certainly from the British perspective, I had the, I can't say pleasure really, but the interesting experience of sitting next to Nigel Lawson, who was on the same panel as me, who then managed to dig up, you know, it was kind of, you know, sort of history again, but who were using the Euro crisis as a way of saying, and now we need to dismantle the European Union. And that's certainly the agenda that was, was being pursued there. And the language around it is either we have a technical discussion about how to save the Euro, 
but it gets conflated into some of the problems with the European Union, which are long-standing ones to do with the democratic deficit and so on. And the, the danger with, I mean, I started to get really quite worried because it then got conflated with all sorts of other problems too um, in, that Europe is, is facing. Let me ask you two really quick supplementary questions before we go to the others. One, just because I'll forget it and not ask it later, and that is, is there some sense in which we're seeing a crisis for Keynesian economics? Here in this country, in, in round one of the GFC, we had a classic Keynesian response by the government. Yeah. There, was, there was a stimulus package that worked, and everyone saw that it worked, and the government has been hit over the head for it ever since. Mm. Uh, and now the problem is debt. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what it seems to me we're seeing is, I mean, this, this may have nothing to do with Europe in the 30s, but, mm. but uh, what we're seeing is, is a clash between um, that kind of classic Keynesian um, uh, approach with, with, with the neoliberal um, ideology that we've imbibed over the last 30 years. Yeah, yes, I mean, it's, it's difficult to, to disentangle because inside Which Europe... Which obviously didn't exist in 1930. No, it didn't exist in 1930. Well, they, they kind of... They were, it was the beginnings of that, of, of thinking about whether you deal with... Problem, whether you deal with a crisis by helping to support consumption or whether you do it by generating investment. And the Keynesian response is you, you invest, and that stimulates demand, whereas the kind of more liberal version is what you do is you support consumption, and you do that by dropping interest rates. And, but you do it also in the, in the 30s, they came to realize by supporting welfare systems, that actually that was quite important, and both the left and the right agreed on that. It's in, I mean, that, your, your question is very interesting because those that embarked on Keynesian Keynesian responses, so I suppose you could say Gordon Brown, Barack Obama and here, uh, are getting beaten over the head. But actually inside Europe, at the same time, those that responded by really, like the British, the coalition government, by, by trying to safeguard Britain's position as a, as a kind of creditor, by trying to deal with the deficit first and imposing austerity measures, is all, are also having problems because it just shuts down growth. So actually, it's a, it's a crisis for economics. A and crisis for economics, that's very nice. Very quickly, um, just going back to the 30s, um, uh, uh, and you know, maybe we're jumping the gun again, but does this crisis still have the potential to become uh, as bad as the 1930s yeah. still have that still potential? Have, yes. I think the, sh the short answer is yes, because inside Europe in the last few years, what we've had is, is technical solution after technical solution to solve the problems with the euro. But the difficulty is that we are now coming to the end of the line with that, that kind of patchwork approach. Uh, and so far, it's stuck together, and I'm sure we'll come, up, we'll come back to this. Some of the other institutions and practices of, of liberal democracy are holding in the way that they didn't hold in the 1930s. But what worries me is that there is a tendency to lose sight of the bigger picture, and certainly some of the language inside Europe has become very accusatory and derogatory about the pigs, you know, Portugal, Ireland, Greece, and Spain, and about, you know, we need to pursue the German model, or no, we'll have the French model. And so actually, you know, one of the key, the key lessons of the Great Depression is what you need is multilateral cooperation. You need to keep sustaining structures and frameworks of working together, even when you really don't want to talk to people that you don't like. And inside Europe, that's definitely becoming more fractious. Right. 
We've already used the word crisis about 400 times and we'll go on using it. And I know Patrizia wants to interrogate the word crisis. But before I come to Patrizia, can I ask Glenda, um, you say, this is a kind of a broad meta-historical question, if you like, you say one reason we perceive that there is a crisis is our sense of history. We remember the Great Depression. I think that's right. So, and we were talking about this last night. So people in the 1930s might not have thought of themselves, particularly depending on where you were and who you were, in a crisis, because they didn't have a sense, of course, of the overarching events that would constitute the 30s and what would happen afterwards. But we have those stories and those narratives, and in many of us, you know, living memory of some kind of those events. So we can't. So the interesting thing is, I think you can't get away from history. Um, both in the sense that we might want to learn from it, but I think the people who are planning, and, 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 and this goes back to your earlier point, who are thinking about what's going on now, are looking to the past mm. to try and understand you know, what should we do next. And that happens in many scenarios, doesn't it? Where before we went into, you know, the Americans went into Afghanistan or Iraq, you know, is this going to be Vietnam, etc. And the same mm. things in the Balkan War. So history lives with us, and, and that can be a useful thing, I think. But the question is, of course, you know, which, which is the right story? Which is the right, you know, which is the right interpretation of the past that's going to help us understand the present? And, that, and, of course, that's the difficulty. Well, Patrizia, you make the point that the role of historians isn't just to yeah. find patterns of repetition. It's all often to use your knowledge of the past to discern new realities that are completely fresh. Um, what do you see in this crisis in common with the past? And what do you see as fresh and new? But certainly the world is different, mm. and it's true that the, the, the crisis in 1929 was a, a West world crisis, but in a, in a very different way in, in different countries, uh, and came from, uh, from the result of First World War in the 20s. Uh, so uh, I see uh, the difference. So there is... I go back to your question. Uh, sometimes, especially in Italy, when the, someone is, uh, a historian is uh, uh, interviewed on, on crisis, uh, very few historians are uh, interviewed in crisis in Italy because <laughs> now the, the, the role is uh, uh, given to uh, technicians and economists. Uh, so we have a, a sort of uh, government, multi-government, uh, far from the parties, uh, apartheid uh, uh, government. But uh, sometimes when I interview, they say, can you see the same situation we had in the 29-30? And uh, this is not the role of historians. The historian has to help, have to help the, the present to understand the difference, not only the similarities. And uh, uh, thinking of what, uh, consider what uh, uh, Patricia was saying, certainly was a a sort of international, deep international crisis, but certainly the, the states, the countries at the time answered in a completely different way because of their political system. And we have also to remember that we are in a different context, political context compared to the 29th. And what about now? Uh, what about uh, now? Are they different? different? Well, uh, speaking, for example, uh, thinking of the countries I, I know better Italy, my country, or, or France, or Germany, they are in a completely different positions. And Italy, well, uh, when had, was touched by the 1929 crisis, but the, the, the fascist system trying to avoid to speak about the crisis. 
to, uh, to contain the crisis inside our sort of autarctic system, even if it was uh, touched by, by it. Uh, France had a, a slow, uh, no, uh, uh, very slow uh, crisis uh, arriving to the peak at, uh, in 32, 33. So, yes, uh, I can compare. Uh, and, and for me, uh, what is important, probably we can speak later, is the reaction of the society, not only of the economy, toward, uh, against or toward this, uh, this crisis. Mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. I can see the big difference because uh, the European society is different. Uh, but now we are in Europe, and Europe means we are in the euro, not only in a, uh, in, in a economic, in a political system, but in one um, one currency. This is the big difference compared to the, to the past. Let me ask Marco the same question. Do you see any underlying commonalities in the crisis in democracy in the 1930s, say, and what's happening today in Europe? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, maybe it should be said that um, there isn't just one European project. There are European projects, uh, just like there's not just one kind of opposition to uh, your, your uh, European integration or, or one kind of Euroscepticism. There's a lot of there's a lot of different kinds. And if you look back to the um, the origins of European integration, there were uh, there were projects for economic integration uh, and envisioning a common currency. But there were also projects for political integration, projects for military integration, uh, projects for cultural integration. Uh, and um, you see this at the beginning. And and, and you see there was a project for a European defense community, a, a European political community, and so forth. And uh, and, and, and there were also, people had a lot of different motives uh, for, uh, for why they, they wanted to have a United States of Europe, as I said at the beginning. So, so there was peace and stability was one, uh, economic prosperity. Uh, some, you know, some historians have argued that uh, this project for creating a supranational European institutions was actually really about rescuing the nation state, rescuing the welfare state after the crisis of the 1930s and, and, the, and the Second World War when nation states had been occupied across Europe there. System, their systems undermined. So there was a lot of different projects out there. Um, but I think if we look at the origins of uh, in the 1940s uh, and 1950s of, of the European project, uh, which is what I partly what I work on, um, it, a lot of the, um, the a lot of the visions of European unity were reflected in interpretation of the 1930s and of what had gone wrong in the 1930s. So um, you know there were people who blamed capitalism for what had happened in the 1930s, and most of those, most of those people, though, were working within national frameworks and creating a more planned economy or a mixed economy, uh, or kind of responding to what they saw as kind of this unrestrained laissez-faire liberalism, this orthodox liberalism. But, um, and, uh, but the people... Um, were there those, also, those people were looking across fascism to the Great Depression. Right, the, to the Great Depression. But there were people who actually saw 1930s as a crisis of, of democracy, but they blamed democracy for the rise of fascism and the rise of totalitarianism. They said it's, it's majoritarian democracies. It's, it's, when it's mass politics and giving and trusting the majority of people with the power to decide governments allows demagogues to come forth and to, and to lead the country down the, down the path of totalitarianism. And so a lot of these people saw uh, Europe as a way of actually containing majoritarian democracy, of, of creating, a, 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 they very explicitly, creating a system of elites that would and a kind of system of institutions that would, um, that would kind of save, they, they, in their words, save democracy by checking the excesses of democracy. Now let me stop you there, because so, yeah. I want you to 
I want to give you a little bit of space because you've got a very... Well, it was an idea that interested me and I sure. want you to, to lay it out. But let, let me go about it this way. One of the interesting questions we talked about last night at 100 miles an hour was simply this. Is the European project, is the European Union a project of the left or a project of the right? Let's start with you because that <laughs> might give you some context to go back to the origins sure. and talk about this, this idea that the EU is fundamentally an elite project. I think you said last night only the elite really have much of an investment in it and not even they understand what's going on. Um, take us back to the origins of the EU, sure. EU and explain what you mean and then we might get some proponents of the other side of the argument to come back and, okay. and answer. Well... Um, yeah, I, you know, I think once again, qualifying what I'm about to say by saying that there were a lot, a lot of different individuals from different political constellations with different kinds of ideologies who were involved in this in this project. But I will say, if you look at the 1940s in general, the left, whether it's the Labour Party in Britain, whether it's Continental Socialists, are not terribly interested in European unity and European integration. And that's partly because what what for them is at stake is building the welfare state and and this and these national projects, um, you know, building socialism at home. That's what matters to them. Or if they have a sense of internationalism, it's a kind of socialist internationalism or a, a different kind of democratic socialism. And let me just um, interrupt you yeah. again and jump forward and you say, do you not, that the European socialist parties, the Italian and French socialist parties, really get keen on the EU as a project around about the 1970s when socialism is faltering. Is when there's a crisis, yes. When there's a crisis, there's a crisis socialism. of socialism, then... And they, why they do they latch onto it when they do? I mean, we'll come well, back to the 30s in a Okay, minute. well, I, I guess well, because with the right in the conservatives in the 1940s have a dilemma, which is that they have a winning issue, which is anti-communism. Okay, they have a winning issue on their side in the West, but they have a problem, which is you can't just be negative, you can't just be reactionary, you're, you know, or described as reactionary by the left, you can't just be anti-communist. You need a forward-looking vision, a kind of revolutionary vision of your own. And Europe, and creating these new international institutions, new forms of international law, is their forward-looking revolutionary vision, which they say is above politics. When Winston Churchill uh, creates the United Europe Movement in Britain in 1947, it's an all-party movement, that's what he says. But the Labour Party sees Winston Churchill as using European integration to further conservative interests and, for, and further as a conservative project. Now, what happens in the 1970s? Well, you have the, you have the same... Now it's not the right the le that, that has this dilemma that's on the defensive. It's the left. Uh, and, and, uh, and in this case, the left... You know, uh, there's a switch, and it's... I'm, I'm also... I'm speaking particularly out of the British context, but uh, takes hold of European unity as their kind of their form of what I would call anti-politics as being above kind of above politics and it's it's a kind of life uh, raft of sorts uh, when when their own project when 1960 the old left project the new left project are are faltering I love Patricia well, for smiling like this we but just because be, we disagree <laughs> yesterday <laughs> just before we, I just want to interpolate one more thing before we come to and let you disagree and that is just to just to go back to the fact that we had a very interesting conversation last night about Catholic corporatism and and I mean you know I, I, I'm thinking to someone like John Paul II who in the 1980s was getting very interested in beatifying and canonizing some of the key figures who were involved in creating the EU after the war. I mean, there, there, there is some link there, is there not? 
Yes, well, I mean, ca Catholics... Uh, and be, be pr precisely because yes, yes. this is a project that's above politics. Yes, yes. I think, well, I mean, there, there, there was, uh, in the 1930s, a group of Catholic political figures and intellectuals embraced what they called the, the third way, or the Catholic, the communitarian third way. But it was an alternative to, the, to socialism on the left, or even the kind of Republican, I'm talking about now the French context, really, the Republican kind of French revolutionary tradition on the left, and, uh, and what they would see as uh, fascism, right, on, on, on the right. And so they said, we're going to offer an alternative, a third way that's neither left nor right, that's above this, which, which is about communities, about the family as the fundamental unit of society, about intermediate communities. Uh, and, it was, and they were very skeptical about the state and the nation state. Uh, and if you look to see in the 1940s then, the 1950s, who are the people who are backing these European unity projects, European integration projects? They're Christian Democrats. Uh, and not, not exclusively, but Christian Democrats, ca kind of Catholic intellectuals in the beginning, then Christian Democratic politicians, networks of, of Catholics. And in fact, in Britain, the labor government and the trade unions are very skeptical of European integration, it, partly because of anti-Catholicism. They say, this is a Catholic international you're trying to create. Um, and so there, there, is, there, is the, there is this Catholic, which, which has some intellectual kind of coherence in that, the, that they look back to the to the time of the Christian, what they call Christendom, or the Middle Ages, at the time when the, when the church was a supranational institution itself. And they see the church as the model for Europe and for European supranational institutions. So there, there is a long tradition of this uh, Catholic communitarian kind of corporatist uh, support. Okay, well, let's leave the Catholics there and come to Patrizia. Is the European project a project of the left or the right? Well, I, I'm a historian of the left, <laughs> um, so I know much better the left, uh, well, right in, in, our, in our contest of movements. Certainly, um, it's a, a pro I think it's a project mostly of the left, reformist left, right? reformist left, uh, since the end of the First World War. Something went wrong. I don't think most of the analysis were about what was wrong, what did uh, go uh, wrong in 1929, mm -hmm. but more what did, uh, did uh, what went wrong after the First World War mm -hmm. uh, in the peace conference, in the way that was rebuilt Europe after a, a dramatic, bloody war, and. Uh, and already during the war, after 1917 and after 1919, certainly a part of the left, coming from the international socialist organization, started to see in different institutions a, 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 a something that could be international community and Europe first. And, and then uh, this was uh, collapsed uh, with the, the, with the, the, the 29 and the uh, fascist, uh, the fascist, the plural fascism. So they, in some way, they um, took back this first project in the second, uh, in the second uh, post-World War, in the second period. In, at, the, at that point, uh, you have to add Christian uh, democratic people. Uh, and you have to speak not only uh, not anymore about Europe itself, Western Europe, the beginning of the Cold War. Yeah. Europe was a result, a, a way to got out uh, not only from the, the war, but from the the, the, the possibility to be the, uh, you know, occupied and or, uh, 
was, it was uh, in some ways uh, a result of the, the reconstruction. Rem remember that the, the first institution was the still they call, uh, they call uh, organization. So uh, resources to, to re uh, for the reconstruction of Europe. At that point, you see you, different generations, the old guard of Europeist, uh, socially reformist, they were uh, in the League of Nations, they were in the, in the uh, International Labour Office, uh, and in the cooperatism, in trade unions, and they thought to do something different or to go back to, uh, to rebuild. Uh, and the uh, uh, people, uh, a new leadership, uh, Adenauer and, and the Gasperi, so uh, the leaders of two important uh, new Christian democratic parties, uh, both from two uh, countries uh, uh, who had lost the war. And they had to be in some way in a new system in the Western, in Atlantic Western they European be, system. They have to be European in a new way. And they way. have to be European in a new way. So I can see a new alliance. So to answer, to finish, to your question, yes, I think it's part of the, uh, it's a, reformist left project at the beginning. In the, in, in, you can put a so radical, uh, French radicalism, and not only socialist. And then was allowed to a, a bigger family, uh, political family after the second, in Western Europe. Glenda or Patricia, or both, well, on um, this question. I think it's an important question because I was thinking, you know, Marco's right, that there were many European projects. And once you start to think about the different contexts in which you, the idea of Europe took hold, you realise what's at stake. Um, the many different, you know, uh, uh, um, ways of thinking about politics and polities that are at stake in the possible disappearance of Europe, right? So I've been thinking, um, what's the context that, you know, that, that I think is probably the most interesting one. Um, you know, if we think now about the European Union, is it left or right, you think about immediately, you know, where is the voice of uh, critique you know, when Hungary tries to introduce um, you know, uh, the censorship of the press, for example? Where is the voice of critique when the French start to expel the Roma? And it's the European Union. So you know, it's very clear that now it has that role of um, representing a kind of a left progressive position, political position. And if you think historically, you know, for me, I'm always interested in that moment at the end of the Second World War and the kind of um, the imperative, and, and this goes back to your point, where, you know, what's seen as the imperative, you know, amongst um, quite a you know, wide range of, of, of interest groups. And if you think about intellectuals, for example, um, and many of them thinking, you know, how do we stop wars in the future, but also how do you stop, you know, the French and the Germans hating each other, for example. And um, you know, so the European project comes out of that desire. Uh, but intellectuals also thinking more broadly, I think, in that moment, after two world wars, I think Europe is also a project that comes out of uh, wanting to rethink more broadly what um, you know, geographers in the 1940s start saying, you know, the question of frontiers and, and um, an interest in federalism, for example, more broadly, in building some kind of um, international form of governance based on regions, regional blocks. I was in Catalonia last year, and the Catalonians, it seems to me, have a an extra reason for investment in the European idea because of this 
federal regional idea. Absolutely, and that has it a enables them to be something other right. than Spanish. So, so then you see the European Union is not only a product of concerns about Europe, but larger issues. And you know, it's, it's, I, I love the story of um, the Italian historian Gaetano Salvemini, who was an anti-fascist, and he ended up in the 30s living in the United States, and and. In the context of thinking about you know, how do you reconstruct Europe after the war and also how do you, um, I guess, how do you stop uh, territorial disputes occurring, he, he had been living in the East Coast in what he called the tri-state area of you know, New York and uh, New Jersey and Connecticut and how easy it was, he said, to drive across the borders in those areas. You know, maybe Europe could be like that. And in fact, there's a longer history of this idea of the United States of Europe, uh, in fact, of Europe being like the United States a federation at some point. So, I, and I think you know, so someone in the 30s or even in the 40s would have that you know, consciousness of, the, of, of larger projects at stake, larger political projects at stake in these, um, in these experiments, if you like, political experiments with what, you know, someone might call regionalism or federalism. And so you know, now the, you know, this, the debate, coming back to that earlier point about you know, the, the, the euro and whether Europe is sacrificed for the sake of the euro, of the euro. you know, it, it never was only about the euro. No, no, it's, but that's, that's about be, it's become about the euro and well, it's being used. Yeah, that's, that's a question that I, I actually have a question uh, for Patricia Can I about. just ask the pre... Can I yeah, answer yeah, go, go, go actually, this one too? Have a quick go at the left. Yeah. Thank you. But it was, well, because it, you can see in a way that as historians we are asking, you know, what kind, which Europe is it? Um, is it the European Union? Is it the European Economic Community? Or is it the antecedents of the European Economic Community? And I suppose the thing that I wanted to say, which I seem to have been saying all day, actually, is it's the economy in the sense that the European economy, you know, once you get to the European economic community in the 1950s, has actually been in, a, in an extended crisis since about 1915, 1916. It's very easy to forget that Europe entering the First World War and then a war that they hadn't thought, you know, the, the sort of the advent of total war, the advent of war economy, then hyperinflation and then deflation and then the Great Depression, which is more deflation, then the Second World War, then a continuation of the Second World War with unprecedented levels of protectionism, unlocking the European economy and the international economy was the issue. I mean, that was the issue. And... and and it's no accident that you have the beginnings of, of kind of what the European economic community about is the sort of is the practical unlocking of that with the European Payments Union is the kind of founding organization which opens up transfers between currencies. And it's you know, then you have the European coal and steel community, and then you have it's about it's about unlocking trade. And it's not that that story doesn't fit into these different ones, but it is very I mean, and it happens all too often, actually, that it's that part of the antecedents of the European Union get forgotten. And that's, that's a deliberate Okay, well, let choice. me ask you a question about these. I mean, you've done a lot of work on these, these proto-structures, mm. I, I suppose, international financial structures, uh, the League of Nations period. Mm. Um, I interviewed... I'd made a programme for Radio National uh, about the global financial crisis about two years ago. I interviewed a fellow called Professor Rakesh Karana, who's a big wheel at the Harvard Business School and a critic of mm. a, a lot of the, the kind of the monetarised kind of economy that's been going on. Yeah. And he said a very interesting thing. I mean, you, you're dealing with there, with the creation of these institutions at the very beginning mm. of economics as we know it. 
He said the real lesson behind the financial meltdown is the importance of financial institutions. Quote, we have to decide whether institutions are a positive thing in themselves or just a means to get somewhere. In the last few decades, we've operated with a cartoon model of society which says the only thing you need to build a social order is a lot of self-interested actors with some minimal property rights. Whereas what the GFC has taught us is the importance of institutions, laws, obligations and duties. It's the opposite of Reagan's idea that government is the problem. Yeah. It's the opposite of Thatcher's idea that there's no such Just thing no as society. society. Yeah. Yes, I mean, I think one of the tragedies of the 20th century is that a lot of people suffered and a lot of people worked very hard to learn the lessons of the 20s and 30s and to try and institutionalize international economic and financial cooperation. And that that sort of stopped. I mean, the people that I've spent a lot of time, probably too much time studying, were not convinced in the first instance that what you needed were institutions. They thought what you needed were rules and practices. Mm -hmm. And what they learned was that in order to keep those practices going, you needed to institutionalize cooperation. That was the only way to do it because their experience of, of economic crises and that, you know, the people I've, I've studied spent 30, 40 years studying economic crises was that really you were never going to get rid of them. That's what they believed, that actually you couldn't predict when a, an economic crisis would appear. But you needed institutional knowledge. You did, yes. You needed forward. to have some way of, of handling them when they came because the nature of, of innovation and the nature of the way that economies are is that you can't, you know, the joy of them is you can't control what they're going to do. That's kind of humanity's innovation and that's where growth comes from. But the problem is you also can't predict where the collapse will come from. It's, it's not a kind of... Up, you know, an upward growth, it's like kind of boom, crash, boom, crash. And they thought that was a sort of natural model. And so you, you needed to institutionalize that to make it work. And that group of people that I studied really lived and worked from the First World War. They were very young. And of course, it's also the growth of and the emergence of economic science, as we know it. A lot of the people that I've worked on you know, study Latin and Greek. They weren't economists. They were at best sort of very crude statisticians. By the time you get to the 1950s and 60s, economics is the hegemonic social science. It's the thing to be. But by the time you get to the 1970s, actually, it's the sort of, you know, the sense that you, can, you don't need institutions. And, and that, because you've got yeah, self-interested actors and that the market can discipline itself. So you either, you know, you invest in the state. So this, the stories that we're all telling are also sometimes about the state, and this is where the euro also came from, is the idea there, the state is weak. European, individual European states, since you have the deregulation of financial markets with the, you know, the big bang in the 1980s, that really individual states cannot defend their currency. So what you need are big currencies and big sort of state structures, which is in a way what the euro is. Okay, let me just bring Marco because he wants to make a point. Well, I just want to say, that, I mean, uh, not that I disagree, but there is a, there is a prehistory to, the, to these institutions, which, which are movements and people who are visionaries and people who are part of these transnational movements uh, who are outside movements of... such as what? what so, so for example, um, uh, well, one was the United Europe movement, the Winston Churchill, a British conservative, that conservatives today in Britain forget that the British con there were a lot of British conservatives who were not only enthusiastic 
about They're still in European the party. No, there are pro-Europeanists in the Conservative well, the, the, party. Well, they, were, they weren't they just, just pro... The, yeah, they weren't... <laughs> the, yeah, silenced and... Yeah. These heresies never go away. <laughs> but they were actually at the lead, in the leadership of the party uh, who were driving There's forces behind, yeah. behind European integration. Um, and uh, so there was the United Europe movement, but there were also um, some very radical figures who were not dry economists. They were, they were figures who... Uh, I mean, many of these figures on, 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 on the continent... Uh, had had pretty radical visions. Of, uh, so, so for example, Alexandra, no, just abstract. Uh, Alexandra Mark, who, who was uh, who was a uh, Catholic intellectual in Paris, uh, and he um, he uh, and and he, he had a he, had, he was part of these intellectual circles in Paris in the 1930s, part of journals such as Esprit and Ordre Nouveau, and the people he was affiliated with, many of them were were actually on uh, the far right. And many of the people he uh, affiliated with and, uh, and came up with these Catholic communitarian ideas ended up then uh, w actually working for the Vichy regime and, and being collaborators with people uh, with, with the Axis powers during the Second World War. And they invoked Europe as, as a defense of Europe and Western Christian civilization against uh, the communist menace or the, or the British plutocrats, right? Uh, or the American plutocrats, right? So that for they invoked Europe and European unity to support the cause of the Axis powers during the war. And then these were, these were kind of mar marginal figures after the Second World War, but they actually um, were very important in catalyzing uh, these movements for European unity immediately after the Second World War. And you find these French intellectuals, some of them with these Vichy past, actually working together with these British conservatives and having, and you know, you don't just get to a, an, an idea about a supranational institution, like, like European Court of Human Rights, for example, where individuals can petition a court uh, against their own state, take their own state to court, I mean, or, or a, su a, a truly supranational uh, economic institution. It doesn't just come from a bunch of government bureaucrats uh, or lawyers or economists sitting in, sitting in states. Uh, it comes often from these people who are on the margins, uh, and they're the ones who actually catalyze, and then you get to the, you get, you get to the this process of institutions and so forth. Go. Maybe we can reformulate the question, because... Of your question is, is Europe, uh, 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 the left has created in some ways Europe? Well, which Europe? We have to reformulate it. Of course, these people were for a Europe, but for which kind of Europe they were in yeah. the 30s? For the new order, for a, a, a German new order, or for a new system in Europe, or for a democratic uh, Europe? Because the, uh, Vichy was was Europeist in some ways, but uh, in a new organization of Europe, not certain as uh, some, the generation uh, no, created Europe after the Second World War. So you can, they could be hide inside you know, uh, a new stream of Europeist, but uh, again, uh, we don't have the time now to discuss, but in the 30s, several, after the crisis, several ideas of Europe were, were present on, 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 the, on the desk. And so probably the strongest idea of Europe, some people having an idea of Europe were in prison. In, in Italy, the, the, the Europeists were in, in jail, you know, writing the first chart of Europe. But the, the strong idea of Europe at the time was a domination, no, racist domination of, of Europe, economic racist domination of Europe. And so uh, it's probably, uh, uh, as historian, probably we have to work more on these streams that uh, they are 
what happened to, to them after the Second World right. War. Right. Look, I'm conscious we're kind of... There's even, you know, a lot to get through. Um, here's, a, here's a question maybe for Glenda, um, but I, I want to bring Patrizia in on it as well. Um, would you agree that a big factor supporting the continuation of the European project is that it's increasingly clear that individual states are not able to solve the crisis on their own, and then maybe Patrizia, yet paradoxically, we're seeing a return to nationalism and xenophobia. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really interesting point, because if, I, you know, if we take that other project that leads to Europe, you know, the one that questions frontiers, it's partly about, I, I think it's also about um, you know, the idea that by the, the mid-40s, that the democratic deficit is, is the nation-state, that the nation-state hasn't been able to cater for the rights and needs of its citizens because you've had, you've had states that have you know, expelled citizens and, and, and made, the, made them stateless. And so the whole question of how you protect not just minorities but individuals within states has come up. So, and states haven't been able to prevent you know, large-scale depression. So for, for all sorts of reasons to do with you know, how, do you, how do you, I guess, utopian you know, kind of ideals about how do you create the best kind of polity, you know, what forms of government might work better, I think that you know, the European project is one project that comes out of this notion of the shortcomings of the nation state. And uh, you said very briefly earlier on that the EU continues to underwrite those ideals. Well, I don't know if it continues. I mean, you know, you'd have to have a look and it would depend who's in charge at which point. Mm. But I think right now that's more or less what it's standing for and trying to hang on to some sense of that past. And particularly in the context of, you know, the, the kind of rancour that's been turned towards... Um, you know, I remember, it wasn't that long ago, when it was, the, it was bankers and financiers that everybody hated and blamed for the financial crisis. And now, of course, it's immigrants. So if you're in Greece, you blame the Albanians. And if, um, you know, in general, you blame immigrants. And, and it's that normalisation, you know, at a governmental level, that normalisation of xenophobia. And what's, what is the last, you know, Verasmus, the, last, the latest Greek kind of... Um, government-sanctioned project was Xenius Zeus, right? Mm -hmm. So, ironic... Uh, an Orwellian you know, term in Greece. Well, it, you know... this it, is Zeus the, the hospitality the, god. The, the god of hospitality. And we, under the sign of Greece the hospi uh, Zeus the hospitality god, we will now get rid of 165,000 migrants and, and, and round them up and get rid of them. It's just, you know... It is all well in, you're right. So, uh, Glenda, you were also making the point last night that... And this, this is a, a point that has an Australian resonance. Um, I don't know what other people think here, but I mean, it's certainly, uh, you know, during some of those turbulent Greek political days around the election, um, I had a sense of Greeks in Australia rather bemused by their Greek relatives back home and actually a bit stern thinking, you know, they really had to take their medicine. But the point I wanted to make is that, uh, that you were making last night, that it's, it's precisely the people who were on the move in the 1940s and 50s, the Greeks and the Italians, who are forgetting that right. now. But actually, and the 20s and the 30s. And the 20s and so, the 30s. And Europe was, of course, you know, the site of the huge waves of refugees and so what we call asylum seekers. Mm -hmm. And you know, so I find interesting both that um, in, there's the tendency to forget. I mean, I think someone, um, a French philosopher called André Glucksmann, talks about democracies tending to ignore or forget the tragic dimensions of history. 
you know, there is that forgetting of, um, of you know, the history of, of refugees and migration and, and statelessness and, and the fact that Europeans were the, the, the subjects of that history um, in, the, in the 20s and 30s, but also the forgetting of the different ways in which people thought that should be managed. So, you know, uh, the, the, the Norwegian Fridtjof um, Nansen was, of course, a man who invented, and he was a problematic guy, he might have been at one of your conservative rallies at some point, but in the face of um, having to deal with the question of refugees, you know, Russian refugees from the Civil War, for example, in the 20s, invented um, what became known as the Nansen passport. So it was just an mm -hmm. ID piece of paper for people mm -hmm. who were stateless and allowed them to, it gave them protection from being deported, right? So there were all these interesting um, uh, ways of thinking about how do you get over the the, the, the difficulties of sovereignty, you know, and, and the ways in which um, nation-state sovereignty actually inhibits um, the rights of individuals to move around, for Maybe example. Maybe they should issue one on Christmas Island. Well, you know, what would happen? And, in fact, he gets a Nobel Prize for being what someone else might call, yeah. you know, a people well, smuggler. Well, but, you know, so there's a, and we know, of course, too, when we think back to, you know, mm -hmm. now, you know, Schindler, of course, someone like Schindler was, uh, was, was a people smuggler, wasn't he? but that's not how we think about him. So there's something about how as soon as you move um, the history out of Europe and, if, and it becomes people that aren't Europeans, then we use different ways of assessing um, their status and thinking about them as a problem and forget that longer history. Patrizia, you've done a lot of work on youth and fascism in the interwar years. Um, are there lessons to be learned about managing this crisis? Well, uh, um, again, as a historian, I work on fascism. Some people, when some people ask me questions, say, do you think fascism is coming back? Yes. And, and I, I say, no, it's not coming back in the same way. It cannot come back in the same way. We can see the difference. We can uh, see the coming back of uh, xenophobia as part of the uh, fascist ideology. It is coming back of nationalism, but not in all the places, uh, radical uh, right-wing nationalism you see in some countries like Greece, and you don't see, for example, in Italy, because Italy has a double crisis in terms of identity of national state. League is not a nationalist movement. It's a xenophobic movement against the immigration, against the difference, against... So uh, there is a, a, a lack today of, uh, uh, well, crisis reveals a, a lack or a weakness in democracy, but also a lack of identity in a lot of, in a lot of uh, 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 countries. And this touched, touches more young people, the new generation, than the, 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 old, uh, the elderly, the older generations, in terms of orientation, in terms of, uh, of course, because young people are in some countries like mine, more than 20% of unemployment, a high percent of unemployment sure. is, uh, is young people under 30 years old. So, uh, would, would you agree that, that the rise of the right-wing parties in many parts of Europe predated the financial crisis and in fact has more to do with 
concern about immigration and the and Islam in Europe and so on, not about the GFC at all? Concern about, certainly, uh, for example, in some countries, France, Italy, uh, a right uh, was uh, evident before the crisis itself. And it's, uh, well, because of weakness of market, because uh, there are a lot other economic uh, um, uh, factors that create this, uh, this uh, rejection of, uh, of people. In the meantime, there, there are countries like mine in the, from the, since the 80s uh, who became not uh, tra transformed itself suddenly from emigration country in a, in, in a country uh, uh, welcoming uh, uh, new emigrants. Uh, and we have also to think that uh, there is a, I can say, overlapping uh, of different uh, situations in the Euro, uh, the crisis of Europe, uh, the international crisis, and the Mediterranean area. And what is going on in the, in the it's connected with the crisis, not the Euro's crisis, it's connected with political, economic crisis. So the Mediterranean changed rapidly, uh, no, the new, the spring of uh, Arab countries. It's a, a new impact uh, on, uh, on the Southern Europe. That the, and Southern Europe is not ready to, to front this, uh, this situation. Let me just ask a few scattery questions that have no relation to anything in Excuse particular. Excuse me, and most of these people arriving are young people. So right. <laughs> well, yes, true. <laughs> so it's main uh, <laughs> power, uh, immigrants and new generation uh, arriving from the southern, southern Mediterranean area. Um, Glenda, this is just completely out of left field. Mm -hmm. Has the mass shooting in Sweden by Anders Breivik. Um, Norway. Uh, sorry, sorry, Norway. Norway, I meant to say Norway. Play, played out to remind people of what's at stake in terms of a return to fascism. Has, has that had a, an effect in the way people have been thinking? It's interesting, because uh, I was in Norway recently. I happen to have been in Norway. Patricia, Patricia oh, was as well, no, weren't yeah. you? Yeah. And, of course, it's the big topic. It, it, it was the big topic there, mainly about the kind of legal con uh, you know, proceedings in place. Mm -hmm. but, you know, I think more generally, you know, it's, it reveals, most of the Norwegians I spoke to tended to see it not as so much as an aberration, I mean, as, 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 you know, as an appalling act, as it was, it's not so much an aberration, but a kind of a manifestation of a more general conservatism that's taken hold in, in Norway um, around, you know, uh, question, xenophobia, the kind of xenophobia so, that's perpetrated there. So, you know, I always thought of this, this is just about my ignorance, but I can think of Scandinavia, you know, it's more enlightened, I suppose. But, so, yes, the fact that in Norway, you know, in a, in a, a state that has an economy that's completely bolstered by, you know, its, its mineral wealth in the way we, you know, Australia is, mm -hmm. and um, that isn't in crisis at all. No, not part of Euro. It's not, uh, and, no, but as we and, know uh, in Australia, that's not a reason not to have a sense of crisis. Well, and in fact, mm -hmm. but also, um, I, I, I was looking at some stats on right-wing parties in Europe, and in fact, you know, I think the country that has the, the largest percentage of, of extreme right-wing parties, political parties in power, is Switzerland. Right, so, uh, you know, again, I suppose the first question you asked was, you know, what crisis? Crisis, what crisis? Um, so there's no direct correlation between, right. you know, the manifestations of extremism and xenophobia and the crisis. But what there is is clearly um, uh, uh, a tendency to 
by, by governments to latch on to xenophobia for whatever reasons. And um, in the case of, of, of Greece, for example, and to use that as a way uh, of, dis you know, perhaps distracting the, the, the society from, you know, other more fundamental attempts to, or, or ways of dealing with the problem. And that goes back to, you know, your comments on um, the 20s and 30s and the observations about what you actually have to do yeah. and, and how complicated it is. Mm. Yeah. But you have to face the problem, right? Yeah. And think about actually how, what do you put into place? What kinds of structures do you put into place? Patricia, um, John Ralston Saul has been in Australia this week and he gave an interview to the Global Mail the other day making the point that Iceland has managed to buck the trend in Europe. It didn't bail out its banks, it let them fail. And relative to the size of its economy, the collapse of its financial sector was the most spectacular in the entire GFC. He says Ireland went through a sharp recession, a massive drop in the value of its currency, but now by letting its banks fail, unlike most of Europe, its economy is growing again. Could that Icelandic experiment be replicated on a larger scale or not? No, it, it can't. Um, Good. It's kind of I'll a very categorical. you you said that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For a couple of reasons. Firstly, you know, the Icelandic banks, they're big in relation to Iceland, but they're not, you know, they're not big banks. If you look at the really big banks, they are global banks, and so um, the, the kind of contagion and the fear of contagion is, um, is much more problematic. What you need to do if you're going to let the banks fail at the moment is you have to, and that's what is one of the many things that has become stalled, is you have to separate off different banking functions. So the Vickers Commission in, in Britain had some, well, they weren't that radical, but they were more radical than anybody else's proposals to separate kind of domestic banking from the more risky in, uh, investment type of banking. Without that, we're all going to, you know, we're all going to go down. So we can't, we can't let that happen, actually. Um, the other, the other advantage that Iceland had is actually in the, in the, the quote that you, you gave, is that it, allowed, it was able to allow its currency to fall, and that's one of the things that's really very problematic um, for the euro. And, of course, it's also, and I was kind of partly thinking about Glenda's question, and, and many of the other things that are happening to increase this sense of crisis. It's not, I've been talking about the euro, but there's also very many structural changes... Yes, you know, really big changes that are happening in the world economy now that, we're, that are similar to very big changes, shifts in power, shifts in financial power, shifts in productivity, shifts in how you made money in the 20s and 30s that people were only beginning to come to terms with. And that's happening now. I mean, if we weren't having a euro crisis, we could be having a dollar crisis, we could be having a contagion, you know, a collapse of the dollar infecting China because of the way that China is... is supporting the dollar, we would be having, certainly having a crisis over food. We're already having crises over food, but we're not looking at that because we're busy worrying about the euro crisis. So I've kind of gone around the okay. houses. Okay. Mm -hmm. Marco, um, feel free to palm this off on someone else if you don't think it's right for you, but I think you were saying this to me last night. And that is, there's obviously one view that would say, I mean, I think we've jumped over you know, this is one of Patricia's major points, I guess, is that, that there hasn't been enough integration at some level, that, mm. that the euro was, a, was a, an audacious project, but, but we didn't get... We, we got monetary union, but not fiscal union, and that bankers and financiers warned the EU that yeah. countries like Greece and Italy... stage one. <laughs> ..would have to be yeah. helped, right? Yeah. Um, it, That's great. 
do, do, you, do you see, uh, uh, is there a sense, do you think, that, that, um, of, of concern about um, a future which would entail um, ceding more power to the Germans, um, German hegemony? Is that, does anyone want to take that if Marco I'll, doesn't? I'll, well, yep. I'll just, I guess as we're doing anecdotes about travels in Europe, <laughs> I, w I was in Italy recently and um, there was a sense that there's... My, impression was, was there's been a great increase in anti-German sentiment and talk of a third world war. It's not a military war, it's an economic but war. And, and, it's, and that's from talking to people. If you look at every single day in the newspapers, there was crazy crisis and also a Mer Angela Merkel on the cover uh, you know, of, uh, of magazines uh, as you know, basically you know, kind of it's like the, the, the German uh, Hun is, you know, is coming once again. Uh, to, you know, and so, so, my, so, so no, 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 yeah, not, not to rescue. Uh, so, so that, I mean, yeah, my sense certainly is that there, there is a, a fear um, among not only an older generation that in Italy that had experience of German occupation, but uh, also younger generations of German hegemony. But I don't know if Patrizia can speak more to that. But I, I also would say that I think more than just German hegemony, it's about, uh, it's about democracy, and it's about whether or not you think that you can have further integration and still, um, you know, still have a, a system of, de of uh, democratic nation states where people still have a say in the cultural and economic and political life of their own countries. Mm -hmm. And I think that is really the, the debate that needs to be had. And I think that's why people are, are disaffected not only on the right but also on the left. Uh, I think there's, there's a common, and you know, often this is dismissed as populist or kind of populist demagogues taking advantage of this, whether they're in Italy, it would be you know, Berlusconi on the right or Beppe Grillo on the left. Um, but uh, you know, I, think, I think that there is a real sense that we, needs to be, that we need to recognize that there, there is a, I, I mean, I believe there is a threat to, to, uh, to a kind of democratic political culture and democratic institutions. Mm. Well, can, can I just put a question then to you, and maybe I'll make it the last one before we kind of close, make a few closing statements, and then open open things up to the to the audience. And that is, we we passed over somewhere in there, um, asking you to 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 speak about the Monti government in Italy. Um, <laughs> uh, if, you will have a, a one one night only about the Monti well, next. But, but let's make the point. <laughs> let's let's make the point. Just picking up on what Marco was talking about. It's it's, it, in some ways it seems to me, I mean, it's obviously it's a technocratic government and it's above politics and, and parliamentary democracy. It's operating above that, you know, you know typical Italian perhaps fashion. But, but, you know, does it in some way um, uh, reveal the elitist technocratic underbelly of the EU project that Marco was talking about in the beginning, this government? Well, this, the government, well, we need a Monty government I'm because, not saying of, you're going because to of uh, to give up uh, to send home uh, Berlusconi and there was no uh, possibility to change uh, into a, a political government. And, but it's a political government because there is a majority in the parliament supporting Monty. Right. So uh, we have to be very, well, there are not sure. member of parties in this government, but there is a majority supporting uh, Monti. Which, uh, and we have really to uh, stress this, this, this fact. Then uh, there is uh, in Italy a political crisis. There is an empty space that can be 
this crisis uh, had, uh, even create larger uh, political crisis. And uh, the Liga is in crisis. Uh, the only uh, the, uh, party, uh, Partito Democratico, the Democratic Party is the only concrete party uh, in this moment. So we are waiting to what? To overcome the, 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 the worst moment of the crisis and in the meantime to give to the political forces the time to uh, rethinking, rethinking uh, trying to not create a, a bigger empty space in terms of democracy and participation because Grillo, this new movement, it seems that if we go now to vote, Grillo, which is anti-politics, uh, you know, in some, some way, uh, can get more than 30% uh, of votes. So it's very dangerous, and it's not only Italy, it can be uh, uh, possible also in other European countries. Uh, speaking about Germany, uh, I don't, well, uh, 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 there is a big difference between I I Italians and, 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 and French people. Italians, uh, uh, Italy or Italians admire Germany, but they don't lo love Germany. Mm. <laughs> and uh, French people, they don't love Germany, but they, they try to not admire Germany mm. at all. So, uh, but uh, uh, I don't think that we can speak about uh, I don't know if the, yes, the press, how the press represents Angela Merkel, the way that uh, this is also how the press in different countries present the crisis, which is uh, as a result in the reaction, the social reaction toward the crisis. But uh, I w wouldn't speak about the German hegemony today, because Germany, of course, is hegemonic, economically hegemonic, but Germany needs, I don't know if Patricia mm -hmm. uh, agrees with me, needs Europe. It does need Europe. And yeah. needed Europe to re rebuild after the uh, 89, uh, the unified, uh, to reunified Germany. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, most of the reunification of Germany has been made by, not only by German money, by Marx, but by, Euro, uh, but not Euros, but, uh, European money, and uh, and uh, so and Germany uh, need needs still today to be in Europe and to be in euros. So it's of, of course it's a, a com complicated no, play. Monti with Angela Merkel with Hollande now they are trying to do in these uh, relations, uh, uh, trying to not to be at the same level, even if, if the the economies are not at the same level. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, very briefly, and then we'll open it to the, starting with Glenda, um, why does Europe matter, you know, the, the, the EU project matter, and, and you know, what are, you, what are your feelings about its, its, its current state of health in reality and its future? Okay, well, so let, let me answer it this way. I think if you think about Europe as um, a project that comes out of um, a, a longer 20th century, a 19th century kind of... Um, history of, uh, of questioning and asking questions about um, the limits of different kinds of, of, of um, government and politics and how you get democracy, etc. I think the 20th century suggests, the history of the 20th century suggests that even if the European Union disappears, you have to reimagine something else like it to take its place. Because always, when you, you get the retreat to the nation state, and then something, it doesn't have to be a war, but the kind of the shortcomings, whether they're economic 
or, or um, you know, social, political, whatever they are, then in the end, there's always you know, the reimagining and the imperative to reimagine some form of, of union or alliance, if you like. Marco. Um, well, I mean, I think that today the choice is, is simple, is more Europe uh, at the expense of the welfareist democratic nation state or a reimagining of, na of the national project and nationalism in a way that's not xenophobic, it's not militant, it's not racist, and it's not fascist, but it's a kind of national project that will, um, you know, a allow for countries to emerge from the crisis in a way that they're stable, but at the same time, you know, uh, they maintain the gains that from the two, two horrible world wars that they fought. They fought for a better future during the two world wars, for, for, for a sense of social protection and, and for democracy. And, you know, you have to, that's just as important as, as kind of, you know, the, this peace and stability and, and the euro. So. Patrizia, closing. Future. Well, uh, I'm a very I'm strong Europeanist, so I I hope I'm, uh, that uh, we can uh, uh, remain, uh, no, uh, in Europe as Europeans, and we have to reinforce the political institutions. We have, of course, to resolve the the the, 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 econo the economic uh, crisis, but uh, we have really to reinforce in some ways the, the, the collaboration among the state, states and reinforce the international uh, organization of our, our countries. Uh, certainly there is a, a pause, a, a moment now, re reflection, and, but uh, it's the only way to overcome uh, the crisis. And, uh, in, in these times, uh, I believe. Not only as Europeans, but in front of our uh, new countries, in front of China, in front of uh, the new uh, emergent countries like Brazil or other countries. So we have to remain in uh, and reinforce the institution because the reinforcing the institution, we can reinforce democracy, a citizenship in, in, in Europe. Now, before I ask Patricia to be the last cab off the rank, there's the microphone. If you've got questions um, that you'd like to put, um, why don't you start lining up there and we'll take some questions from the floor. Patricia, you, you have the last God, um, closing. I, was, I suppose I started thinking about Marco's point about democratic deficit and from the moment that you know, I was kind of conscious of the European economic community and the European Union, there's always been a long-standing debate about the democratic deficit. And in some ways, both the left and the right in Europe, so the Jacques Delors mm -hmm. social chapter project, didn't really explain it to the people, but everybody agreed if we have more union, we can improve workers' rights. And then the euro came about from a, a right project about removing transaction costs, facilitating labor market movements, and, and improving you know, market efficiency and producing something that can combat or strengthen the dollar, depending on which way you look at it. And the, so everybody, in a way, colluded with not really looking at the political questions. And the irony is now, in order to save the economic project, they have to think about the political questions because at the moment they, you know, they're having to change the European Central Bank, they're having to think about euro bonds and all of this kind of stuff. They are going to have to do something about fiscal union and you have to explain that to people. At the same time, so far when we've had elections in Ireland or where we've had them in Greece, so in two countries where you know, the austerity vice is, is clamping really, really tightly around its people, they are still voting 
voting to remain, just about, in the euro and in the union. And there isn't yes, much Yes, even though what, what the, the, the far left and the far right did better than ever in Greece, and what did they make? Was it 14 per cent in yeah. total? I yeah. mean, yeah. it, it yeah. wasn't, in fact, a vote against Europe in the end, right. was it? No. Right. And, and it's important to remember what the European model means for, for other states. And, and I was a very interesting discussion that I was lucky to be part of where a, a Chinese economist, quite a senior Chinese economist, was talking about how the European crisis looks from China. And China is trying to negotiate how to relate the market to the state and trying to find a way somewhere in the middle because it's supposed to be <laughs> you know, a kind of controlled economy, but it's actually shifted some way from its moorings. And that's really also what the European model was about. How do you insert something between a planned economy and a completely free market economy? And Europe has, has experimented in lots of different ways with that. And it's also the place that, for better or worse, the world has learned about multilateral international relations, you know, about the sort of, it's always a kind of thing that's said about Europe, but there's no getting away from it, the kind of level of diversity and the way that from trying to, trying to plot peace and develop prosperity, you have to develop multilateral models. That's come out of Europe. And so if we start losing states like the British state, I mean, using the Euro crisis to have a referendum to pull out of the European Union, the, the European Union will be a lot poorer for it, and it won't be the first that does it. Britain just does just it. very quickly, a question that, that something you were saying there just raised, and I, I realise I haven't mentioned. Um, is, the, is the European um, welfare model, social welfare model, under genuine threat? Or is it... Or, well, I wanted to add, uh, when we have to save the European model, we have to save the welfare state. That's what I'm getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But for the moment, the welfare state is, uh, when, uh, if resists, uh, help the, 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 to you know, make soften the, 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 the crisis. Yeah, so, and yeah. this is okay. uh, the right. major model in Europe. Yeah, it is. And that is a, you know, a very profound lesson that we've It's intrinsic to what it's, it's about. It's intrinsic to yeah. what it's about. Yeah. 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 And it is, at the moment, hanging on in there by its fingernails. Mm. Right, right. Does anyone have any questions or comments? Come to the microphone over here. Uh, and anyone else who would like to follow, why don't you make your way over in that direction? Can we not just shout? Oh, we've got a, we've got a microphone. Um, look, um, I'm from the economics school, so I know a little bit about this. <laughs> but I just want to make one or two points and get your responses, and that is that... Can you speak... This is not really a sovereign crisis, really. The public debt to GDP in the United States is higher than the whole of the Eurozone. This is an architectural problem, the way the European Monetary Union has been set up. And the question is, is whether they can unravel the EU without destroying the EU. And some of you have made comments about that. But it seems to me that I don't think see the EMU as the way it's structured now can survive. And one of the reasons it won't, there have been suggestions to sit. To, to make it work in the short run by making euro bonds common, by allowing the ECB to print money, effectively. Mm. To, you, you could do these things like they've done in the United States with the TAR, ATAR program. But the problem is in the long term is that for a common currency to work, you really need the dominant economy, and that is Germany, to play the role of stimulating the rest of the, the Europe. Yeah. Think of the Bretton Woods system where the United States played this role for nearly 25 years. They accepted current account deficits and they stimulated the rest of the world. Mm. Germany's not interested in that. Germany's project is export-driven growth. Yeah. That is to make Europe 
to export to the rest of the world. Now, there's a limit to that. 30% of Germany's GDP comes from exports. For an advanced country, that is remarkable. That's like we get in a developing country like China. So this is a real problem. There's an... It's not a model that's going to work in Greece where there's no real economy. No, but if Greece falls out of the euro and allows its currency to depreciate, which is going to happen, I don't, don't know when. But that's, I mean, that's one way the system might eventually collapse. There's various ways it could happen. I don't know how they can bandage it up. But in the long term, without Germany playing that dominant role, I just don't see how it can survive. Um, and the other problem is, is, even if it does survive, what you're looking at is a stagnation. For how long will this stagnation go on for? You know, slow growth for how long? And this is going to be a big issue, I think. Yeah. Great point. Anybody else? I was interested by the suggestion that um, one of the reasons we got Europe was because there was a perceived democratic deficit in nation states. It's, it, did I understand that correctly? Somebody said that? Yeah. Um, th that seems very ironic today because today the nation states are much more democratic than Europe. Europe doesn't have directly elected executives and so forth. Um, it has, in many ways, far more serious democratic deficits than any of its component countries. Um, is that just ironic, or is it relevant to what you said? Or, and, and is perhaps making Europe more democratic something that they, people might decide to do that, to, to make it more accountable? Okay, so I think when I was talking about that, I was taking democ you know, democratic in a kind of broader sense. You know, if, in terms of representation, and representation isn't always about voting and electing um, people. Sometimes it's about the kinds of um, rights you have and guarantees of rights within states as a citizen, right? So the, the question in the 40s was what happened that allowed states to expel its own citizens and turn them into stateless refugees, right? So what was, and how do you get, what kind of model of um, governance do you need to ensure the rights of individuals when states don't represent those rights? And that's the kind of argument, I suppose, that now gets taken up in the, at the UN level um, and with ideas like human security, that there are times when the state isn't able to protect its own citizens. So, you know, maybe... Um, so I, ha I, I had a loose interpretation of the word democracy, and it's not one that is exactly precisely about you know, a particular model of voting and elect electing government. So you mean human rights? You really talking well, about human I, rights, individual rights and representation. If I, if I could just also kind of connect your points to the, the, the gentleman's points before about, about the European Monetary Union and the problem being German behaviour. One of the, I mean, one of the challenges when we're thinking about what the European Union is or what the European Economic Community is, is that the thing that everybody stresses is the novelty of supranationality, of having these European institutions. But the other side of it is always, actually, that there is still a lot of remaining state power and state interest. And you can see that coming out very clearly in the way that Germany is behaving, all the things that they didn't do when they created a single currency. And, you know, it was, it was a, you know, a kind of, I mean, I was not a, as a historian of the gold standard, you would not be a fan of the European Monetary Union because it's like the gold standard with everybody locked into it. So you can't come out. There is no way. If you come out, it's a systemic crisis mm -hmm. and it will just feed its way through. But it's that, it's that tension between states wanting to remain sovereign while at the same time saying that they're giving up some rights. That's mm -hmm. always this, this struggle that takes place. But it makes it very difficult to say 
what it is, you know, in, in one sort of static way. Anyone else? The mic. Beautiful panel. Oh, sorry. I was, uh, uh, you have to take the microphone out, I think. Pull, yeah. pull it right down anyway. Yeah. Thank you. I was thinking about what you said about these new spaces of politics that we need and uh, the idea of rethinking uh, politics and rethinking the institutions. Do you think that looking at the history of social movements? Uh, uh, transnational and international uh, civil society movements. Uh, I'm thinking about the history of international women's movements, for example, or peace move movements, and the idea of Europe uh, and internationalism that within these movements has been created uh, could help uh, in uh, creating uh, new institutions and reforming and uh, um, sorting out from this crisis somehow. And I'm thinking also about uh, the idea of Europe of Alex Langer that perhaps Patricia is familiar with. The, the, I didn't, the, the Europe of Alexander. The, sorry, I didn't get the last part. The, 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 the Alexander. The Europe of Alexander. Yeah. Explain what you mean. Sorry? Explain. The, Alexander Langer was a politician and an ideologist of, uh, he was also an European deputy in the, in the 80s. Uh, and uh, he was part of peace movements, uh, and he had a background uh, in the leftist Catholic movements, uh, but then he turned to the uh, leftist, uh, leftist movements in Italy and then uh, in um, Alto Adige. Mm. And uh, he had this idea of uh, Europe uh, uh, open to non-European non -European and Mediterranean space, uh, which was uh, uh, anticipating uh, a lot of issues coming up. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I knew very well Alex Langer, and it was also very connected to the Green as an international pacifist, but also international uh, Green movement. Uh, certainly, yes, for democracy, all these movement, pacifist women, women movement, very important, has been very important in the last two decades. Remember, the big, during the last, especially in the second Gulf War, the, the, the presence of, of millions of people in the street and all forth. But uh, uh, I don't see any more this movement around. It's, there is a, a, a sort of desert. If you look at what is the, the, the squares and the streets in Europe, uh, there are strikes, there are uh, unions still present, but these movements mm. are, are in crisis like the Euros. Mm. And, and this is uh, a sad, uh, a sad uh, uh, observation. So there's a separate crisis of the democratic left going on. Well, democratic left, but it's not only democratic left, but the democratic participation. And especially when you think that the categories more touched by this crisis are youth and women in the countries. Someone asked about Occupy movement. Someone mentioned the Occupy movement. What? Occupy. Occupy Wall Street, Occupy Rome, Occupy. 
Yeah, uh, in, uh, you are the, in, 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 in England, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, not, uh, not in, in, in our countries. I didn't see occupying very little in Germany, in France, or, or, or in Italy. Yeah. Okay, I'm going yeah. to... I'm so going the to, Wall Street occupying... Uh, yeah. I'm going to wind it up on that note and thank Professor Still Patricia Clavin from Jesus College, Oxford. <laughs> Professor Patricia Doliani from Bologna University, Martha Durante and Glendis Luger from Sydney University. And thank you. Thank you. Thank you.